series in Exodus continues. In chapter 15, the latter part of 15 and chapter 16, Israel encountered two difficulties. No drinkable water and no food. They complained. God abundantly and miraculously provided both. He supplied their needs. Now again, here in chapter 17, Israel encounters another challenge. No water. What do they do? Will they learn lessons from their past that in every situation God proved himself to be faithful and supplied their need or will they simply distrust God and complain? They complained. In fact, it seems to suggest in the early part of this chapter that their complaints go to a new level. The word used here in verse, in chapter 17, into verse 1, it says, There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. They went from complaining to quarreling. That suggests arguing, contending, fighting with Moses. They are rejecting God's leadership over them. That's the point here. This highlights that. The Word of God wants us to see this, that they're not just complaining against Moses. Notice what Moses says. In verse 2, it says, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Was Moses the one that brought them out of Egypt? Was Moses the one that led them into this wilderness where they were? Was Moses the one that, that was responsible for their circumstances? The answer is no, it was God. God used Moses, but ultimately it was God. So the answer here is when we quarrel against our circumstances that we find ourselves in, we often, we are quarreling with God himself. In fact, Moses says this, why do you test the Lord? People respond in verse 3. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Think through that question again. It was God who brought them out. And for what purpose did he bring them out? Here they find themselves in a difficult situation. And immediately they began to blame God and to, to miss, I think, what is the 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 most basic truth of Scripture, and that's that God is good. That God is good. And they're saying, no, 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 this is not a good God. This is the one who left us 
took us from a good situation, good situation, right? In slavery, under oppression for over 40 years. He took us from a good situation and he took us to a worse in the wilderness where there's no food and no drink. Now it's true they had no food. And it's true they had nothing to drink. He said, well, then they have a right to complain. No, they have reason to trust God. The same God that showed himself mighty in delivering them from, Israel, from Egypt, who brought these ten plagues on Egypt and, and showed his power and his might and his purpose, has brought them to this wilderness where there's no food. So you can either say, God, you're to blame, and you're just trying to give us hard times. Or you can say, God, you have brought me through all of this, and you will surely show yourself strong in my life. Which one do you choose? You see, we're going to face some challenges and some hardships. In fact, God intends us to face challenges and hardships because it shows where our true heart is. Israel is revealing that they don't trust God and they don't want to walk under circumstances that he dictates. God doesn't always say your way is going to be pleasant. He dictates some thorns along the path, some rough times. And Israel is saying, I don't want the God who leads me through rough times. I don't want them. And so they grumble, they complain, and their complaints get to the point where it's called quarreling. And look what Moses says about them. He says at the end of verse 4, he cries to the Lord, says, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. It shows where their complaint has, gone, has grown to, to where they not just want to fight, they're thinking about killing Moses. Physically, literally killing him. They are rejecting God's leadership in their life. You know, sometimes too many people equate God's leadership to nothing but success and good times. We think that if we're walking in God's way, we will always have a smooth path. God is sure to, take, to, to tell us that's not the way that he does things. So just because you have a challenge doesn't mean that God is not leading you, directing you, and orchestrating the events and circumstances of your life. He wants you to learn to trust in him. Check yourself. How do you respond when things are difficult? It's not much of a test when things are going well. It's not much of a test when everything is pleasant and things go well. I, I believe that this, this, these last two years, that as, as a nation particularly, we have gone this struggle with COVID, has revealed a lot of things about us as believers. We so quickly and easily put aside going to church. It amazed me when it, when it first came about, I think it was about March or so in, in, in 2020, that someone in their 
great knowledge and power deemed that certain things were, were essential and others weren't. Um, among the things that were essential and allowed to remain open in business that were, were kept going were abortion clinics, liquor stores, and of course some of our grocery stores and other things. You can argue that, yeah, we, we need groceries and gas, but we absolutely need abortions. We absolutely need alcohol to the point we can't dare close them down. But the other things that were deemed non-essential was church. One of the first things that was demanded that we close if we had more in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, if we had more than 10 people gathering at a time, it would be deemed illegal with the threat of the government's force coming down on us. It was amazing to me, not so much amazing that that happened, because the government just showed themselves, or certain individuals in our government showed themselves for what they were. What, what amazed me is the so-called Christians who so easily gave in to that. And said, oh, okay, well, well, cool. We can worship God in other ways. You certainly can, but will you give up so easily? What God has ordered us to do, and you know, as a, as a church in Sweet Communion, He said we will not. By no means will we stop worshiping together. Together, not just remote. It it those difficult situations begin to show who you really are. <coughs> I got a little cough, Pastor. <coughs> I can't come today. <coughs> right. I'm a little sick. I won't be able to make it. Now you say, surely, Pastor, you must understand that a pandemic. It's amazing to me we had a number of people within our church who were among the first to get COVID. They weren't the ones afraid to come. We had a number of elderly in our church who were susceptible to such a setting and a disease. They weren't the ones afraid to come. It's amazing how quickly and how easily we will stop serving the Lord. Now, if you think I'm kidding, just see how many churches are still not gathering today and how many individuals who claim to be members and claim to be um, Christians who no longer want to gather and have a tough time coming back to gathering with God's people. You see, the tough times just show where you really are. In fact, it says that God tested his people with these challenges in the wilderness. He came through and he provided. He wanted to see, he wanted them to see for themselves where they are and where their priorities were. And when things got difficult, they began to complain. 
they began to quarrel to the point where they wanted to kill Moses himself. And God, in his graciousness, give Moses direction in this situation. And he says, Moses, I want you to go right before the people, and I want you to choose out some of the elders among the people, the leaders among the people, and take them with you. And by the way, take that staff that I gave you. And meet me on a mountain. I'll show you where it is, and... I'll lead you there. And he got there. He says, I'm going to have you strike this rock with your staff. And I'm going to cause water to flow out of this rock. It's going to be enough water that, that over a million people can drink and live and be sustained. Why did he take the leaders with him? He wanted them to see once again, not as, not as though they had not seen before through the ten plagues that God brought. He wanted them to see once and again it is God who supplies his people's needs. Now you say you believe that. You say you trust in that. Will you walk in it? Will you believe it if your boss gives you a notice tomorrow? Will you continue serving God if things don't happen to go your way? When difficulties come, when challenges come, will you continue to walk with and serve and submit to and obey God? That's the question. Will you believe that he has the power and he has the desire to meet the basic needs in your life? So what do you do when you don't get what you want or what you think you need or when you don't even get what you know to be the basic necessities of life? That's what Israel was tested with. It's not like, hey, uh, we got to forego a snack today. <laughs> they were really tested. We need water, the basic necessity of life. And they went without. It was a real test. But how will you respond under those real tests? Will you complain? Will he argue? Will you quarrel? Will you fight? Or will you simply listen to, submit yourself to, and obey God? Trust God that he will make a way, that he will show you what he wants you to do, and he will supply your needs. See, you may not know, none of the people there knew how God was going to supply this need. They were looking all around like, look, there's no water anywhere where we can see. We can send out groups to go hunt and go look and search. But look, we are dying of thirst. How many days, how many hours can we go without water? But God says to Moses, follow me and bring a couple leaders and I will supply your need. And he did just that. It says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. I like these next couple words, four words. And Moses did so. 
It's simple obedience, but it's, it's based on real faith. Faith that doesn't act is not faith at all. Faith that just talks is not real faith. Faith that this just says this is how I would respond is not real faith. Moses did so. In the sight of the elders, it says he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling. And so the testing and quarreling, he called that place Testing and quarreling. So like every time they came to get some water, testing and quarreling. Remember your unfaithful response to God and remember God's faithfulness. In spite of the people, God supplied their need. He gave a name to that place that they might remember it. Here we have the second part of this chapter, chapter 17. And a couple names come on the scene that teach us a lot in this second part. Two, first of all, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Again, if you see that in verse 1 that God had moved them, or the implication is they were moving from their camp and came from the wilderness to this place called Rephidim, and, and, and now they were there. In other words, we know that every, every time they moved, God had directed his presence. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire led them along the path. So here they were coming to another place where God had led them. Another place of challenge, another place of difficulty. And it says they came to this place and Amalek came and fought with them. And so the first name that, that comes on the scene for us here in this chapter is Amalek. Who is Amalek? Well, what is he doing? He's fighting the people of Israel. Let's go back and, and, and look a little bit at, at his history and see what he is about. Who is Amalek? Amalek is a descendant of Esau. There were two twins born to Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Amalek is a descendant of Esau. You can find that in Genesis 36, 12. Now, you can write that down in your notes if you'd like and take a look at it um, during your week of study. So Amalek is a descendant of Esau. You remember that Esau was, that these two twins, God had promised one. One was the, the, the son of a promise, Jacob, and Esau was the one who failed to believe in God's promise and easily gave it up. You can read through that story. You know the story of Jacob and Esau, how Esau gave up his birthright. Now, it's true that, that Jacob was a, was, a, was a trickster and tricked him out of it. And that's a wrong thing to do. 
But it showed that Jacob valued it and Esau did not. So Amalek is the descendant of Esau through a woman who was his concubine. And he had this child through. We can look more. So, so, so we know that Esau and his descendants were kind of like in opposition to Jacob, almost at every turn. We see that developing in Genesis, but we see it carried out throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament. And very early, in fact, we're getting to this story when Amalek attacks Israel, and, and we want to see why that was such a sin. Let, let's take a look at Deuteronomy 25, just a couple verses there. Deuteronomy is the fifth fifth book in the New Testament, chapter 25, verse 17. Deuteronomy 25, 17. I want to read that. So we have to look a little bit at the history. Deuteronomy is going to recall the same event, but just give us a little, um, um, a little knowledge about it. Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. So this describes this act that, that Amalek was doing. He attacked Israel when they were the most vulnerable, and he attacked the most vulnerable of Israel. What do I mean by that? They were just coming out of Egypt. They didn't really have an army. In fact, God is leading them through this way so they wouldn't encounter the Philistines, who would surely uh, be an awesome foe against them. And Amalek decides, hey, look. I got, a, I got a nation here that I can overcome easily. They can easily fall prey to me. So he looks at them as vulnerable and he attacks them. And then the way that he attacks them, it says he attacks, he attacks the tail. In other words, this whole group of, 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 of Israelites that are walking through, he comes behind and, and snips off a few. And the tale would be those who are most vulnerable in the whole group. So we, we, we continue in Deuteronomy 25. It says, verse 19, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you, for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven and you shall not forget. God is saying through Moses and handing this down to their new leader, Joshua. He says, don't forget what Amalek did. Make a note of it. And there's coming a time when I'm going to have you Pay back Amalek for what they did. The vicious attack they did to you when you were most vulnerable and then picking off the weak and the most vulnerable of you at that time. I will not forget that. 
Because of this cowardly, disrespectful act, Israel was commanded by God to destroy them. Their time would come. We see throughout this history, turn with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel, remember Israel's first king was Saul. And this is the direction that God gave to him as the first king. Again, this is years later, probably another 400 or so years after, um, after they have left Egypt. Just want to read a few verses here. Deuteronomy 15, excuse me, 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, verse 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted, now he's speaking, this is, this is God speaking through the prophet Samuel, speaking to Saul, the king. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in, imposing them, in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. That tells me something. God is serious. So he told the first king of Israel to utterly destroy Amalek and all that they had. That came straight from God. In verse 18 and 19 of the same chapter, 1 Samuel 15, verse 18 now, we can see well, God had instructed Saul as the first king to do, and we see Saul's rebellion and how God treated that rebellion. See, Saul felt he had a better way. Uh, you know, I'm going to be a little more diplomatic. I'm not going to destroy totally them, but let's look at what, how God felt about that. Verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? See, Samuel had a better idea. He said, you know what? I won't kill them all. And I won't destroy all of their, their goods. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to give it as an offering to the Lord. God wasn't pleased with that response. So we see a couple of things here. We see God's intent throughout the years to destroy the enemy of God's people. Amalek is a picture of Satan. He's a picture of the enemy of God that loves to destroy God's people and will pick at them at their most vulnerable time in their most vulnerable position and has no pity at all on them. That's a picture of our greatest enemy, Satan. You, you should be sure that he has no pity on you. He doesn't care what situation you're in. In fact, he, he's, he, he in, in many ways is responsible or may be responsible for you being in that position and wants to take advantage of you in that position. So know that you have an enemy that hates you, wants to destroy you, and looks for advantages and times that he can do that. 
That's what kind of enemy we have. But know also that if you're a child of God, you have a father, you have a God who protects you when you are vulnerable and fights on your behalf and doesn't stop fighting and will ultimately destroy, totally destroy your enemy. Annihilate and not apologize for it. This is the God who instructs Joshua, who instructs Samuel, excuse me, instructs Saul, and actually completes it more with David. I want, to see, I want you to see that. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going down this path because we want to look at who Amalek is and what they've done and why God determined judgment against them and how he carried it out. And what this says about our enemy and what this says about our God. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, I don't know if I'll read all of that, but I want you to understand the situation. David has been chosen by God to be a king, but he's not king yet. And him being chosen by God made Saul so jealous that Saul wanted to kill David. So David was on the run. But he had a number of men who were his supporters. He had, he had in fact, a small army, 600 men who were with him. So now let me read verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the, the Amalekites, notice, here they are again, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. Now, let me put a little um, perspective here. Ziglag is the city that David had headquartered at. In other words, he had taken his men, the 600 men and their wives and their families, and he had set them in Ziglag to, to kind of sit still and be protected there while he did his, his other uh, 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 battles and his other, he was, uh, he was on the run, and yet he was in battle as well. But Ziglag was their kind of their headquartered home. So he's being chased by Saul, and he has his headquartered place, and guess who attacks him while he's being chased by Saul and tries to destroy all of his, his, his city, his men, and, and their families is, is the Amalekites. The Malachites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. All right? So the Malachites come and they capture all of David's people, but they don't kill them. And they destroy the city that David had made a headquarters at. Verse 3. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed 
for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We have a contrast between how David responded to the challenge and how Israel several years prior responded to the similar challenge. David has been out warring. He's been out running from, from, from Saul. He comes back, and in the distance, he could see his hometown, his headquarter place, burning with fire. Can you imagine that? He gets there and finds the town burned down and all the people gone. He doesn't know if they're killed or not. He and his small army, and you can imagine how distressed they felt. It says the men wanted to kill David. But David, what did he do? What does David do? It says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That scripture has been one of my favorites. It's been an encouragement to me for a long time. That in the lowest of lows, David found strength in God. I wonder what he thought about that night as he went to sleep. Everybody crying and, and for, for good reason. They seemed to have lost everything. I would imagine what David recalled was God's promise to Israel and God's promise to him. That I will make you king. And I'm going to give you a kingdom that will, in essence, never end. One of your sons is going to rule over my kingdom forever. You see, because Jesus Christ himself is a son of David, and he would take on that kingship. David must have imagined, Lord, I don't know how you're going to pull this off, but you're going to do it. David must have imagined, Lord, I have been shepherd over sheep when a lion attacked, and it's your boldness, your protection, and your strength you've given me, the courage you've given me to strike out at a lion, to strike out at a bear, to protect your sheep or the sheep that you've given me. He said that was just preparation for when another one will come after God's people. His name was Goliath. Everybody was afraid of him, but David in his courage and the boldness of God fought against Goliath and defeated Goliath. David probably recalled all of those things that he accounted to God doing in his life. Yes, it was David who performed it, but it was God who gave him the strength, the courage, and the, the mindset to do that. And David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He didn't know how God was going to do it. But he had no place to go but to trust in God. He didn't even know how bad his situation was. Whether his wives, whether his children, whether his whole group had been destroyed or just taken captive. Well, the Bible doesn't leave us hanging. It tells us exactly what David did. And in verse 8, it says this. David asked of the Lord, should I pursue should I overtake him? Guess what God says? Yes. <laughs> I love the Lord. You know, we, we too often in our culture preach this wimpiness of men 
that men ought to stray away from any type of conflict, any type of battle, any type of confrontation. But David asked the Lord, and the Lord said, yes, go get them. Go get them. Not only go get them, but I'll be with you, and I'll give you victory. That's the kind of men I love. I love the Davids. I love the Joshua's. Back in our chapter, Moses said to Joshua, go and battle with Amalek. He didn't say negotiate. He didn't say, hey, I forget her. We don't know why y'all picking on us. Can y'all please stop? No. He said, go battle. Joshua could have said, hey, hey, we, we ain't nothing but slaves here. Pick up your sword and go fight. Go attack the Amalekites. And again, David is telling, uh, God is telling David, attack the Amalekites. You see what? When you make yourself an enemy of God, the Bible says for good reason, vengeance is mine. Now, most of us take that to say we shouldn't personally take our vengeance on. That's true. But you forget the main thing God is saying. I will. God is saying vengeance is mine. And I will repay. I will do. I will protect on behalf of those who are mine. I will claim them. I will own them. I will protect them. And I will fight. Here, here's the big story. I will fight forever whoever sets themselves against them. And God hasn't finished that job yet. I said Amalekites or Amalek is a picture of the enemy of God's people. And the face of that enemy is Satan himself. God will utterly destroy Satan. And guess what? We will rejoice when it happens. He hasn't done it yet. He's going to do it. He has promised to give victory to his people. God hates when the destroyer picks on his people at their vulnerable moments and tries to destroy them. Do you feel like that sometimes? You feel like a sheep, and a wolf got you by the tail. You may be living in that, but you need to know you have a shepherd who will not stop until he grabs that wolf and utterly destroys it and saves you safely from that destruction. That's the God who's pictured here. He loves his people. He battles for his people. And he will, not, uh, 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 he will not let off until that enemy is destroyed. And so back in 1 Samuel 30, David asked for permission from God to pursue the Amalekites. And God, tell him, God tells him, yes, go. It says in verse 10, David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind. So he didn't even have his full 600. But he took those 400 and he fought. And he won. <laughs> verse 16 through 19. We got to read that, don't we? It says, when he had taken him down, behold, 
they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. In other words, David had a spy that came to him and said, I know where they are. And he showed David where they are. And so they, they followed him and they found all the Amalekites celebrating, partying and dancing, rejoicing with all the stuff they stole from David. Verse 17, David struck David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Now, I'm not going to comment on the two wives thing. We, we've talked about that before. He's still in sin. But I want you to know that even, even still, God protects his people, doesn't he? Nothing was missing, whether small, verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. David is a picture of God's great warrior, that's what Saul should have been, but he wasn't. God, great's warrior, great, God's great warrior who does and completes the task that God had given him to do. But let me go back to our, our, our text because we have another picture of that happening in our very own text. In Exodus chapter 17, Joshua is mentioned for the first time in all of Scripture. It says in, in Exodus 17, verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, first time his name is mentioned, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Skip down to verse 10. So Joshua did, as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek. Joshua. His name means Jehovah saves. Translated in the Greek is translated Jesus. Joshua is a picture of that great conqueror who will come and protect and fight for his people against their enemy, Jesus. He fights. Now, it's an interesting fight. It says Moses and Aaron... And then another man we're introduced to by the name of Her. Her happens to be the son of Caleb. Caleb is, a, is an interesting person, too, because if you remember the, the, the two faithful spies were Caleb and Joshua. Well, one of Caleb's sons is named here Her, And he's the one that's associated with Moses in leadership and associated with being a strong man that supported Moses. And just to tell you the story, you can read it. We've read it earlier, is... Moses held up the sword and, and, or the rod, and as long as he could hold it up high, Israel would have victory over Amalek. And when his hands got weak and, and he couldn't hold it anymore, Israel would begin to be defeated and Amalek would begin to win the war. And so Moses had two uh, helpers. He had Aaron and he had her, and they sat him down on a rock and they helped hold up his arm. What you see here 
is different responsibilities that God has assigned. He assigned Joshua to go out and fight. He assigned Moses as the leader to support those who were in the middle of the battle. And he assigned both Aaron and her to support the supporter, support the leader who is working and praying and helping and supporting those who do the battle. All are important, all bring out the victory, and it's Joshua who's physically fighting, and he wins against these people. So when Moses' arms get tired, he has Aaron and he has her to support and to hold him up. And as long as he is held up, Joshua gets victory in the battle. What a beautiful picture. Jesus is our Joshua. He has set, he's been set apart by God to go and do battle with our greatest enemy. Satan is that enemy. Sin is what would destroy us, and he does that through death. Jesus comes and battles with Satan. He pays the penalty, the price for our sin. But his, his, his work is not over until he's totally destroyed Satan, and that's coming. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to totally destroy Satan. You can read about it, Revelations uh, 20, verse 15 and forward. You can read about the battle that takes place. Jesus speaks the word, and he destroys Satan and all of his forces. That's going to happen. This is a literal thing that is going to happen, and God has pictured this in his people's lives all the way through, and we can even see it in our lives. Satan seeks to, to meddle with us, to hamper us, to, to, to work on us when we are most vulnerable, that most vulnerable position. But God says, I will not rest until I redeem my people, I, 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 I protect my people, and fight against their enemy. I want you to know what a great God you have, what a warrior he is. He calls us to trust him. He calls us to fight for him in his power against the enemy that he's, he's given us. Let's pray. We're about to go into communion in our service, in our communion, recalls what Jesus has done for us. It's kind of like the first round of the battle. He went to the cross. It seemed like a defeat because he died. But it was the first round in the battle of Satan to totally destroy Satan by giving those who were under the sentence of death given them hope. He took our death, our punishment, and died in our place. I mean, when I say our, I mean those who are trusting and will trust in Jesus. Father, we thank you for what your son has done for us. As we come into communion at this time, we want to remember the victory that Jesus Christ has made on the cross 
seeming like a defeat, but it's a great victory on the cross because he rose again. And now when we trust in him, we have forgiveness of our sin and Satan can't claim us anymore. He tries to harass us, but he cannot change our eternal destiny which is to be with you. We are your people, your sheep. You are our shepherd. You indeed protect us. We look forward to the time when you will come. As I pause in prayer, I'm going to ask the leadership men, would you come forward as we prepare for communion? And then I'm going to continue in prayer as they come. They'll set up the table and we'll go right into communion. But as I pray now, we thank you, Father, for the protection you have provided in your son, Joshua, Jesus. We pray that you will call people to faith, to trust in Jesus right now for the forgiveness of their sins and for the destruction of their greatest enemy. Now we pray, Lord, as we prepare ourselves for communion that those who are submitted to you, who are walking in obedience to you, they will take this seriously. They'll remember the price that Jesus paid in his own body and with his own blood that we celebrate today. Cleanse our hearts, Lord, as we come to communion right now. May, may our worship be more than just words and thoughts, but as we leave this place and even as we commune here, be our action that show that we serve you, that we trust you, that we rejoice in you. We look forward to what you will do and thanking you what you have done. So bless this communion table. Bless all who take a part of it. Lord, help us to realize that in order to take a part in communion today, we need to have real faith, having trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. We need to have our sins forgiven. We need to be walking in fellowship with you so that there's no sin between you and us on our part. And that we are at one with each other and there's no sin between us on our part. We pray, Lord, that you would remind those who are not in right fellowship with you to restrain, to keep themselves from taking communion today, but that they will get it right and come back and take communion at the appropriate time. Those who are not a member and don't desire to be a member are not walking in obedience to you. I pray that they would not take communion today. Those who have sin in their lives that they haven't turned from and will walk out of this place and have not turned from. In other words, they, they are looking forward to continuing in that sin. That they not take communion today. Those who don't have a right attitude of thankfulness towards you and what you've done for them and not even convicted about it, you would bring conviction to them. 
they will not take communion until they get that right with you by asking your forgiveness, claiming your forgiveness and walking in it and turning from that sin. Lord, even as we pray, you pinpoint and you show us there are some things in our lives that may need to be addressed. And I pray that we would address those. And then, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of taking communion, not because we are so righteous or so perfect, but because you have claimed us, we are yours. You have touched our hearts. You have turned our hearts to you, and we want to serve you. We want to thank you for who you are and what you've done. You've directed us, commanded us to take part in communion to remember what Christ has done, to look forward to what he's going to do. And with that, Lord, we joyfully, willingly participate in communion today with our hearts and our clear conscience. We do this as a worship and a service to you. Thank you for doing the work in our hearts and preparing us. In Jesus' name we pray. You've examined yourselves. You should. Let me just say this. If you haven't examined yourself, then don't take communion. You don't take it seriously enough. As we take communion, let's remember what Christ has done for us. Let's pray for the different elements. We're going to ask Cliff if he would pray for the wafer that represents Jesus' body. We're going to ask Andy if he would pray for the juice that represents Jesus' blood. So let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of communion, Lord, that we do as a memorial to you for what you did on Calvary's cross. And Lord, as I pray for the wafer, Lord, that we take as a picture of the body that you gave up for us. We pray your blessings on our table today as we take communion, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice that you gave on Calvary's cross for our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Lord, we continue in prayer. We just think of the juice, the blood that you shed for us, the sacrifice you paid for us, the torment you allowed yourself to go through um, in order that we could be saved and be in fellowship with you, the sacrifice that you paid for us when we were undeserving. We just ask that you help us be mindful of this as we take it as one body. Men will direct you from your seats. We're going to ask all to come forward, even if you don't participate in communion. That will help in the flow. We're going to ask you to come along the side aisles and return to your seat through the center aisle. If you don't choose to take communion, just continue walking. We will not pass judgment on you for that. In fact, that's an act of submission and obedience to God until you get things right. So would you come at this time? Come quickly, would you come? If you would take the cup and return to your seat and do not open until we all do so together.
Once you return to your seat, if you would be seated, we'll give further instructions then. This cup contains both the wafer and the juice. There's a top seal, very thin seal. If you would peel that back and you will have access to the wafer. We're going to do that together in just a minute. Kill that first seal so that you can have that wafer. Take it in your hands. This wafer represents the body of Jesus. His body was given so that he could be a sacrifice on the cross. He came out of heaven. The Bible tells us God is spirit. But Jesus took on a body so that he could be both God and man that he could die on the cross for our sins. He took on a body so that he could be the sacrifice for us. He took on a body so that he could live the life that none of us could live, a sinless life, to qualify to pay the price for the sin of all who would trust in him. He took on a body to be our Savior. Let's remember Christ as we eat together. In his body... A human body he had blood in his veins that when he was injured when he was beaten when he was stabbed when he was struck on the face blood came down when the crown of thorns was pressed on his head blood came down his blood poured out because his blood was the payment for our sin we remember how important that blood was. Israel was, was given a command to slay a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel above their homes. And God, when his angels saw that blood, he would pass over. Jesus is the Passover lamb. When God sees that we've trusted in the blood of Jesus... This is not that blood represents his blood. When God sees that we've trusted in Jesus' shed blood, his judgment passes over us. We are no longer condemned. We are free because of Jesus' blood. Let's drink together as we rejoice and remember Jesus paid the price for us.
I know our service has gone over a little bit today because of communion. But hey, the Packers aren't any good anyway, so you don't need to run home to watch them. <laughs> and I'm a true Packer fan, so I just tell it like it is. <laughs> but we have a wonderful time in communion, so we take time to do that. Um, usually I have time for each one to pray, and I just want to mention uh, Brother Lawrence today. Um, I'm going to challenge you as I do that to, to come to church, to be faithful in church, and to be on time. Lawrence makes two trips to church, both way before time, before we start. And he makes two trips so that he can drive as many of the men from Milwaukee Rescue Mission as he can. I thank the Lord for his faithfulness and his service. That's not all he does. You can come here on a Saturday like he was to help cleaning up, taking his own truck and collecting. I have to say this. We have some, we have some good neighbors. We have some neighbors who just choose to throw their trash over the fence on our property all kinds of junk and Lawrence will come with his truck and pick that up and take it to the dump so that we have a clean spot. We've mentioned Brother Willie Wallace before and his working on the grounds. Today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Brother Willie. We love you and we're thankful for the work that you do and you can just walk around the grounds and you can see that. He can't begin to tell you some of the things that he does that, that nobody notices. Nobody knows all that he does, but God is appreciative of those who do that type of work and that kind of service. I want to highlight these two men uh, and, and just be thankful for what God has done uh, in their lives and how just they just serve, just, just serve. You don't have to ask them to do anything. They look for things to do. They're not alone. They're not the only ones who serve that way, but I am so thankful for, for their model and their example and those who serve like them. I'm going to ask our elder Brian if he would close us in prayer, but just before he does that, we're in the month of November, and I just want to thank you for the October. I want to thank you for the uh, gifts of appreciation, the cards, the notes, the special little things that you did uh, for each of us, uh, and uh, just, just what a wonderful thing it is to be in service to God's people and to see their overwhelming response and love. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for all that you have done. It's, it's so much. I don't know that I can mention each one individually, but it's, it is such a blessing just to see that kind of response um, from you. Uh, thank, thank you for it. And, and you know, the other thing I noticed is today when Andy gave the, the, the report, we reached our goal, so you didn't, you didn't like steal from, from Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> you gave faithfully all the way through, and I'm like, wow, Lord, how do you do that with your people? It's amazing. God is good. You are faithful in serving him, and we appreciate that. Brian, you might close us. If you have any words, just close us in a word of prayer. I'm just thankful for you guys. Uh, me and my wife just keep on just going home smiling <laughs> about just the little gifts that you guys have given. Um, and some of them are not little at all. So thank God for you guys and your generosity. You don't have to do that, but we really appreciate it. And um, I just thank God for just you guys serving us and encouraging us to keep serving. Um, also want to thank God for the Sunday school numbers. You know, there's nothing <clears throat> I 
nothing encourages me more when I look at the numbers and the numbers for Sunday school. Because those are people who set themselves to get here early to hear God's word. It is something about that that's very encouraging. And so when I'm, you know, when I get the chance to do the sermon and I see the Sunday school numbers, if it's down, I'm a little down. If it's high, I'm a little high because that is a picture of our faithfulness and I appreciate it. So with that said, let's change our goal. Our goal, let's change our goal just a little bit. Let's change it to 75. And let's keep on pushing to be faithful to the Lord with the little things. Everybody doesn't see. Everybody doesn't get, you know, hey, I'm glad you came to Sunday school, but still come. And, you know, faithfulness, unfortunately, it's a gift of being able to be taken for granted, right? Mm. It is the gift of being able to be taken for granted because you don't always need encouragement, but you still do what you should do. So I thank God for all you guys who are faithful, sometimes forgotten. But if you're forgotten, it's because we already counted on you. <laughs> so we thank God for you despite that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for allowing us to have a spirit-filled service. We thank you for your Holy Spirit guiding us and giving us joy all the way through. We pray that you just bless us, Lord, as we go through this busy week, Lord. We have a lot of things coming up, Lord. We got our fall social and all these things are fun things, but they also are activities that take effort and planning. We pray that you just bless our joint services next week, Lord, and that the word would go out that our services and our brotherhood and sisterhood with our brothers and sisters in Crossway would be a blessing. That your Holy Spirit would just fill us all up with your fire, Lord, that we would have a great inspiration, that we would have a great service, that we would have a great sermon, Lord that would just honor you. And in your name we pray, amen.